Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Hope your July is going well. Today we've got a repost from about a year and a half ago. This is Brian Zahn talking about his book, Letters from Babylon. A timely message in a world that is so divided politically uh, to be ultimately aligned first and foremost with the kingdom of God. BZ does great doing that, talking about that in this podcast, just as timely right now as it was a year and a half ago when the book and the uh, the podcast first came out. So here we go with that. Uh, Reminder, we've got one more repost that I'll put up next week from, um, this one's, uh, the next one's from a little while back, but then once we get to August, we're going to have some fresh content for you, already recorded uh, one of those earlier this week that will be played in August that uh, I assume y'all are going to really enjoy, but for now, here's our man BZ doing it to the show today we have i don't know how many times he's been on it's, it's a lot of times at this point it's our man bz what's up friend hey good to be with you i've been on this podcast mm-hmm. numerous times numerous mostly because i keep writing books and then sometimes people won't like what i say and i have to come <laughs> back on and explain how no i'm not a heretic mm-hmm. or a marcinite <laughs> no I, I was recently called a heretic for the first time on, uh, well, on re- yeah, because I had my first book come out, so I've got uh, been called a heretic, so that's pretty exciting. What do you, do you book? There's no heresy in there. No, oh, busy. That is so nice of you to say that. Do you think that like there should be a special ceremony when a preacher gets called a heretic for the first time? It's the H bomb dropped on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're full grown now. Oh well, it's a big day. It's like I should <laughs> get my driver's license or something. Yeah. That uh, okay. Now, you just buttered me up to some nice, you actually read my book. I appreciate that. I don't think it's going to, it's not going to atone for what happened though, the last time we were together in Malibu. You were yeah. leading a prayer school, and people think of prayer as something that is holy, uplifting, encouraging, but somehow you used an introduction to a prayer school event as a way to attack me <laughs> in front of my that. people, my people, the churches of Christ, and you said something to the extent of, the only thing I know about the churches of Christ is Luke Norsworthy. And I don't think you or I want the churches of Christ to be pictured as Luke Norsworthy. Do you remember saying something like that? No, I don't. You did. It's, it's I, recorded. I honestly don't. I think I called you snarky, but you have to understand that's more or less a compliment. Yeah. I, I, snark can, is really probably one of the gifts of the Spirit. No, so, okay. You called me snark before. You called me a snark on the podcast. Without without the podcast, that's a compliment. I'm I'm all for that okay. within reason. Well, then I'll take the snark. Do you? I mean, Paul was snarky. Come on, mm-hmm. he, it comes through. Do you? But Jesus wasn't. But he's. Well, I don't hey, know. Hey, hey, don't don't dodge the question. Okay. No, I don't remember. You did. You did. But do you feel like? I mean, if you think the Church of Christ, don't you think I, I could be a good mascot for the Church of Christ? I think you'd be great. We could all wear black V-necks, right? See, I don't know that much. You know, I've been, I was in a, no, it wasn't, I started to say I did a prayer school this past weekend in a Church of Christ church, but it's not a Church of Christ. No, but Joel Keeley comes from the Church Church of Christ. It's Church of Christ-ish. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he grew up Churches of Christ, and now he's planted his own church. But like, you're getting around in our our world, Pepperdine. You know, it's all been so far so good. I mean, I know you, and I know Richard Beck, and I know some other folks, and mm-hmm. those, those are all good people to know. Well, 
me and Richard I'm Becker. Trying to, I'm trying to atone here. How am I doing? <laughs> you're, you're doing pretty good. You're doing pretty good. Um, all right, we'll let you off the hook on that. I, I can only imagine what someone's thinking if they go, Church of Christ equals Richard Beck plus Luke Norsworthy. That's kind of terrifying, actually. Um, well, yeah, see, now you're doing it to yourself. Well, I know, but I thought maybe the amalgamation of me and Beck together made it even more macabre and terrifying. Anyway, speaking of terrifying, Brian, you got a book that came out today. I'm assuming you're going to get some pushback on this one. I'm just going to tell you that up front. Well, if I don't, then what's the point? <laughs> I mean, if, if, you, if you don't say anything that can elicit some sort of passion one way or the other, then you might as well never have set pen to paper. When I, I mean, I understand. The, I mean, not all books have to come from that place, but that's this book comes from a place of, of passion, energy, concern. Um, it's not a book for all times. It's a book. I think. I think of all of the books I've written, and I've written seven books in the past ten years. This is the most uh, time specific. Yeah. It's written for our time. It's written for 2019. It definitely was. It, it definitely was. And I appreciate that you're like, if, if I don't make some people upset, what am I doing? It seems like you've, you've really brought the, like, the old rocker and the preacher and molded that into one person, which has become BZ. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I take that as a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like that's what you're doing there. And I, I really appreciate that. Okay. Let's get this up front. Is this book anti-Republican, anti-Trump? Is that what you're trying to accomplish in the book? No, I, I know in our very polarized, dualistic, culture war context, everyone wants you to be one or the other, elephant or donkey. And I, I, people will either believe me or they won't, but I really don't have a stake in that game. I do care about the church. Now, I would also be feigning naivete if I didn't say that I think an awful lot of people that I have done Christian life with, who and to, to some extent bear the label evangelical, have um, committed the folly of consenting to become the de facto religious wing of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And I will critique that. But my... What I'm asking people to do is not to become Democrats, but to become more radical followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think what you're trying to do is you're not trying to be anti-Republican. You're trying to be pro-church. Yeah, right. Uh, look, I wrote a Farewell to Mars during a Democratic administration, you know, and that, that also is a critique of America as a kind of empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't uh, put that timeline together, but that's that's definitely true. Um, so your move in twenty was it twenty twelve, twenty sixteen? You did the the Camino. Am I saying it right? The yes. You mm -hmm. did the walk then during the 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 Trump election. In twenty twelve, did you do something? Weren't you gone then as well on sabbatical or something? No, my first sabbatical was 2016. In 2012, I made up my mind that that's what I was going to do. Oh, okay. I okay. said, I, you know, going through the 2012 October, September, October uh, election cycle, 
America's quadrennial descent into madness, uh, I told Perry, I said, look, I just can't be in America for another one of these. So in 2016, we're going to have to get out of town, I mm-hmm. mean, out of the country. And she's the one that came up with the idea, well, why don't we walk the Camino de Santiago? And that was the first sabbatical we'd had in 35 years. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus freaks who start churches on their own. Uh, I mean, we didn't even, we didn't know what a sabbatical was. We thought maybe it was some sort of Jewish garb or something. You know, we didn't know what it was. <laughs> he, I, he's gone his sabbatical. I'm, I'm two years away from getting a sabbatical at my church. So I hope none of my uh, people are listening and thinking that that is a normative timeline for how long sabbaticals are supposed to uh, <laughs> require of you working before you get them. Well, so, yeah. but I'm making up for lost time because Lord willing, I'm going to go back and do it again this year. Because I will, I, I make no secret about my age. I will turn sixty. That's the old rocker. Sixty in um, March, and I'm just going to tell my church I turned sixty. I've got to go walk the Camino, right? And they'll say, "Yeah, right. Go walk it. Hmm. See you in seven weeks." Good for you. Good for you. Okay, so you're gone during the election. Uh, you're well, leading up to it. I actually was here on election day because I had to be back in time for our 35th anniversary of our church, which is the first Sunday of November. I was gone for the whole run up to it. Now, I, I don't think you say this in this book, but I feel like elsewhere you've said that you've been on a stage with Mike Pence before, back in a previous iteration. With, with John Ashcroft and a bunch of others. So was that a yes to? Not Mike Pence. Okay. Okay. I, I've, I'd left that world before he was on the scene, at least as far as I know. I mean, I don't know about Indiana politics. But. Okay. All right. So you're back uh, when that happens, uh, when the election happens. And w- when did you start writing this book? I, um, in, uh, well, I, I, I came up with the idea to write what became the book uh, in January of 2017. Mm-hmm. Okay. So but, you, but I, yeah. But, but you've, you've been developing these ideas for years, and I, I feel like some of these themes you and I have even talked about in the past, and so it's great to see them formulated into a book. Um, uh, like I said, I think this is an outstanding book. I think I texted you this over the weekend that like I think you really have done something very special with this book. I think people need to read it. I think it's going to make some people very uncomfortable because I think you are acutely diagnosing the way that church has, has jumped into bed with politics. And one of my concerns is that when when some people will critique the religious right that it will it will then become like a slippery slope for them to think, well, I don't want to be on the religious right. I'm going to call them out for their for their transgressions and I'm just going to end up on the left and I'm going to become the religious left now. Yeah, I the problem with Christian right and Christian left is that Christian is reduced to adjective duty. Mm-hmm. It's right and left that is actually the noun and that really matters. And you you end up with the you know Christian tail wagging the political dog. I'm calling people to abandon that whole way of thinking. Um, the p- part of the problem is both right and left have such a low view of the church that um, we don't see the church actually as an agent of redemptive transformation in our society. It's more of a common interest group that meets on Sundays, but if we want to get anything done, we have to be able to somehow 
uh, persuade Caesar to use his sword in a certain way. I'm calling the church to abandon that entire way of thinking, not into quietism, not into total disengagement, but rather by attempting to be uh, something other, that is the kingdom of Christ in this current context, that we could we could actually be prophetic. That is, we would be in a position to bring critique in the name of Jesus and not be a mere partisan. Yep. Because yep. once you become a partisan for either side, all right, then you're a tool to one side and you are an enemy of the other and pretty much ignored by actually both. I mean, it, the side that you're a partisan for, they will give you lip service, but as soon as you walk out of the room, they'll be chuckling those religious nuts. So I, I begin the book. By the way, the book is called Postcards from Babylon. I don't think we've actually said the name of the I'll title. Do, I'll do that in the warm-up. It'll be in there. Oh, so you're a professional. I get it. Okay. Um, oh, come on, man. You've been on here enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. you got a good podcast. So I start the book by really recounting my experience in the Jesus movement as a teenager in the 1970s and how really there was something, I know it's an overused word, but I, I, it's still my default word. It, there was something radical about it. Mm -hmm. uh, we understood that Jesus did not have a nice, easy fit with um, American politics, Republican or Democrat. And that's why we were a little bit, we, we, we had what I might describe as a kind of holy ambivalence towards politics, not towards justice issues, but towards the machinations of the political machines. Mm -hmm. We just thought, you know, Jesus has called us to something other. But somewhere along the way, that got lost. And so in one sense, I was writing with a lot of my compatriots from way back when, uh, who just seemed to have slowly been seduced by the siren song of Republican politics, I'm trying to awaken in them a memory of, remember when we were really radically with Jesus and not with whatever, Fox News. It, it, well, it seems that the whatever is the Christendom model, that in some ways Christendom has been That's what people have been converted to instead of Christianity. And so you make this great uh, jump to the 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 famous walk to Emmaus text where you have these two people unbeknownst to them are walking next to Jesus and they're disappointed because the Jesus they were expecting is no longer here. And so he, he, here's part of that quote that you eventually get to. You say, Christendom is dead, but Christ is risen. Those who lament, a few lines down, those who lament the collapse of Christendom are like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were depressed because Jesus had not turned out to be the kind of Messiah they anticipated. Skip down a little bit longer. The contemporary task of the church is to make Christianity countercultural again. And once we are untethered Jesus from the interest of empire, we begin to see just how countercultural and radical Jesus' ideas actually are. How does getting away from Christendom help us see how radical it is? That, that passage you just read there towards the end, it has that phrase in there. The task is to make Christianity countercultural again. During the writing process, in my mind, the, the subtitle that I had that I knew would never really be the subtitle because it was way too clunky was uh, making Christianity countercultural again. Mm -hmm. That's that was in my mind. That's what I actually that was kind of like the working subtitle. But yeah. I knew it was. I ended up opting for the Church in American Exile, which is much better. But it's it's saying the same thing. Yeah. It's saying that, that we must learn to view ourselves as exiles. 
The problem I'm critiquing, I'm doing it in a very contemporary fashion, that is, it pertains to uh, the church in the American context of the 21st century. And the problem the church is facing is the temptation to become a chaplain to empire. This is nothing new. This has been the great temptation of the church um, for the last 17 centuries. So if you think about the wilderness temptation of Jesus— uh, the third temptation in Matthew's account is what I think is really the big temptation. And that is uh, Satan says to Jesus, you know, the, uh, the kingdoms of the world are under my control. Uh, I could work a deal with you. Um there's a way for you to have all of these kingdoms and their glory. I think in the wilderness temptation, Jesus is he's getting ready to launch his ministry. He's thinking about how, what form his ministry will take. It says that Satan came to him to tempt him. I, I don't doubt that. I do doubt that, you know, Lucifer shows up sporting a red suit and a forked tail and all of that. Uh, I think the Satan came to Jesus the same way that Satan comes to us, and that's mingled with our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is tempted to take the shortcut or the seeming shortcut of employing violence for the sake of good. Jesus could have become Jesus the Great. I mean, could he? Could Jesus have uh, attracted, raised an army to drive the occupying Roman forces out? Yeah, I think so. Could Jesus have have built such a great army uh, that he could have marched on Rome and overthrown Caesar? Well, I, I think Jesus was every bit as gifted and talented and able as Alexander the Great. He could have gone that way. And I think in the wilderness temptation, Jesus is tempted to, to build a kingdom uh, of violence for righteous ends, mm -hmm. but, he, but he sees it for what it is. It, it's bowing down to Satan. And he has to reject that, and he has, he's going to have to go a different way. The church, though, also has to face that temptation, and we haven't done as well. Mm -hmm. we have, we've made those devil's bargains, whether it's Rome or Byzantium or Russia or Spain or France or England or Germany. Now it's Americans—well, I should say it this way. It's now, now the, the church, hosted by the American empire— is facing the same kind of temptation. Now, Luke, when I say empire, I want to give a definition because I don't want to just throw that around as kind of an empty pejorative because people hear me say that yeah. and they think it's just an, a way for me to talk ugly about America. Mm -hmm. I'm actually using it in a very specific way. Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. Um, God, the, the God of Scripture delights in nations, their ethnicity, their diversities, their cultures, but God is opposed to empires. This is not a, this is not a minor theme in Scripture, though if you're raised in a church that is hosted by and is a chaplain to empire, you learn how to screen it out. But this is a this this theme literally runs from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, let me, let me interrupt you. So okay. God loves America. God loves the nation of America. Okay, when we say America, first of all, America is such a huge thing to say. It's four things at least. 
America is a nation, a culture, an empire, and a religion. It's four things. As a, a nation, nation, culture, culture empire, empire, religion, religion. Okay, that's the you know that one's what it is. Americanism is is indeed a religion. Um, so remember, empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations, manifest destiny, shape history. The reason that God is opposed to empire is that what empires claim for themselves are the very things that God has promised to His Son. It's Jesus who has the divine right to rule nations, manifest destiny, shape history. So America's four things, nation, culture, empire. I mean, we've got what? We've got, we've got military bases in like 144 nations. <laughs> That's an empire, all right, and a religion. As, as a nation and a culture, America is a mixed bag. There are things I can critique, but there's much to be celebrated. The entrepreneurial spirit of America, uh, when it does have an inclination to help other nations and be a to be a good faith partner with the community of nations. America has been a leader. It's been a leader in science and technology and development. There's much to celebrate and be proud of. As an empire, it posits itself as a rival to Jesus Christ, and as a religion, it's a heresy. Okay, when you're com- when you're saying uh, America sets itself as uh, as an uh, an opponent to Jesus. Uh, the most telling example that you had in the book, um, one that was a good one that you were at a Christian school and everyone could recite the Pledge of Allegiance, but they couldn't get this the Lord's Prayer. Say again? Yeah. This is a Christian school. Yeah, Christian school. Christian private school. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, that was good. But the one that was most convicting to me that I had never connected was the apothesis of Washington. Right. I had never put that together. Can you explain more about what that is? In the capital... Uh, the dome of the Capitol Rotunda, mm-hmm. the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., if you look up, you see the apotheosis of Washington, apotheosis, Greek word meaning to make a god of. When you first look up at it, it, it looks a little bit familiar if you've been in uh, especially certain kinds of Catholic churches. Indeed, the artist who produced the apotheosis of Washington in the Capitol Rotunda, the the job he had before that was in the Vatican. He had done some work there. And so think of, think of a scene, you've seen these in religious art, of Christ ascended and he's seated on a cloud and there's angels flying around. And what it's designed to do is to indicate that Jesus has ascended and now rules the nation. But in the U.S. Capitol, where you expect to find Jesus, what you see is George Washington, for crying out loud. And, I mean, that's not my term for it. That is the name of it. It's called the apotheosis, the making, the the deification, if you will, the deification of George Washington. Mm -hmm. That's stunning. I mean, yeah, that's stunning. Here's a quote. I've been a pastor going on four decades, and I can tell you that the greatest challenge to making disciples of Jesus in the American context is that most people are already thoroughly discipled into the rival religion of Americanism. Now, there are a lot of people who, uh, you have this uh, was letter to America on the 4th of July that was written a year or two ago, where you say right. a lot of the stuff that you mentioned earlier, you love the entrepreneurship, the, the, the beautiful things that America does, and you go, I, I really like America. I, I'm glad it's that I'm I'm an American. I, I love this country. I double down on that. I'm a Texan, which means I'm even better. I even love no, work. I just came back from Texas. You guys are something else. I know. 
<laughs> yep. From a land. Yes. A good place. Um, but I, I love where I'm from. I love my, my state. I love my city. And I'm so glad to be here. And I want to love my neighbors and honor God in the way that I love the people around me well. And so I hear this stuff and I go, well, I, I don't want to, I don't think I worship where I live. I don't think I, I have a higher like commitment to this than to God. What helps me be aware of the ways that I'm more discipled to this than to Jesus? Well, you should be able to identify occasionally a place where your commitment and fidelity to Christ impinges upon your American patriotism. Mm -hmm. Okay, patriotism, if, if by patriotism we simply mean pride of place leading to responsible citizenship, this is a good thing. But if we mean much more than that, if we mean that somehow we believe that uh, we should prior, prioritize the supremacy of the United States among the community of nations, and that Jesus is somehow on board with this, now we have, we, we've tried to make Jesus a servant to the American cause. And... Uh, we fail to recognize what is meant by the seminal Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, you know, if, I assume the vast majority, if not all, the listeners to this podcast are some version of Christian or at least interested in these sorts of things. Uh, and we're used to hearing people say Jesus is Lord. But, but I think what we basically mean, whether we are fully aware of it or not, aware of it or not, is that Jesus is Lord of my spiritual life. That's really what we mean. Jesus is, because first of all, Lord is an archaic term that basically is only used in religious settings anyway. Uh, but in its origin, terms like Lord, Son of God, Savior of the world, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, were all imperial titles granted by the Senate to the Roman emperor. So you would have the coins that would have the image of the emperor with one of his imperial titles, the most important of which be, is Lord. So it was a political term, not, not really a religious term. So when the earliest Christians or Christians for the first three centuries would say Jesus is Lord, that was a term fraught with political implications, mm -hmm. because what they're saying is Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that's what got them in trouble. Uh, I, I could even say it this way. The early Christians were not primarily or, or at all really persecuted for what we would think of as religious reasons, but for political reasons. The Roman Empire was remarkably tolerant of other religions because it understood that it was, if it was going to be this vast empire— aspiring to rule the world as they knew it, uh, they would have to be tolerant of various local customs and religions. What they were intolerant of was a claim to any rival lord or king, and this is precisely what the early Christians did. Now, the early Christians tried to explain themselves, and they're saying, we belong to a kingdom under the lordship of a king who has renounced violence, and we are happy to live among you as your subjects, and we'll pay taxes, but there's a line that we cannot cross. We cannot pledge our supreme allegiance to Caesar or the empire because we've already done that in our baptism 
we've pledged our allegiance to Christ and have become citizens of his kingdom. So we are people that have dual citizenship, but, but one citizenship is subservient to the other. So, so I, I drive around, you know, I'm in my car, I'm driving around, whether it's in Texas or Missouri or wherever, and I drive by these churches that like to have flags. And, you know, they've only got one flagpole sometimes. And so they want to have an American flag, and they also want to have a, a so-called Christian flag. Now, I, I'm not keen on the so-called Christian flag to begin with. It's not historic Christian iconography. It's obviously a conflation of Christian symbols and American symbols. But, okay, let's just take it at face value that it represents Christian faith. How are those flags arranged? Always, without exception, the American flag on top and the Christian flag beneath. That is a moment of unintended truth-telling. And if you say, well, it doesn't really matter, oh, well, just switch them. Just switch them and see what's happening. You'll be on the local news that night if you just switch them. So um, I don't know what we were talking about, but I I think that makes a point. Yeah, it does. In the book, you even bring this up, Luther's two-kingdom theology, which has come back in the news recently. Um, uh, Falwell, I think, referenced it recently. Um, You say the problem with the two-kingdom theology in the book is this. You say what ends up happening is Christ being reduced to a, quote-unquote, spiritual king, whatever that is, while the state is made the real king. Let's just say that Luther's two-kingdom experiment did not end well in Germany. Why doesn't that work? See, that, that was snarky right there. See that? But I'm, but I'm making a point, a pretty serious point. Which is why I appreciate you calling me snarky, because in some ways yeah. this is the student being called what the teacher is. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, so the problem is, but we're going to say Jesus is my Lord, but like I live in America, and so that's, that's why the flag is above me. So what's the problem with that? Well, what was the problem with that? And uh, I mean, look, look. If I'm in Portugal today and I see a Portuguese flag in a Portuguese church, I have to tell you, I think it's pretty benign at this point. I don't think flags belong in the sacred worship space of Christian churches, but sometimes it's benign. I say, okay, I mean, Portugal is not on the verge of becoming some world-dominating superpower, Uh, and, and their patriotism is just necessarily pretty benign. Um, America, well, let's let's say what was wrong with viewing um, viewing. How did how did you you said you said that that we're serving Christ under the American flag? Okay, I think you said it like sure. that or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Uh, okay, what was wrong with German Christians serving? Christ under the German flag in 1938. Well, we all know how that ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and see, the problem is you can't... The German people of the 1930s weren't monsters, okay? Germany in the 1930s is arguably the most theologically sophisticated nation in the world. And they're educated, uh, and yet something had happened that the vast majority of evangelical, by which mostly is meant Protestant Christians in Germany, that is the heirs of Luther and his two-kingdom theology, Mm -hmm. ended up 
celebrating the rise of Hitler, endorsing him, becoming really his most loyal and faithful base, because in their mind, they were convinced that this was God's doing. And once you, once you start talking about God raising up a chancellor, a president, a prime minister, a king, uh, you're, you're sailing into dangerous waters. Yep. What God has raised up is Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, as Christians, we can't just go traipsing around into the Old Testament and go, well, maybe he's Cyrus. Oh, come on, man. This is A.D. This is Anno Domini. This is the year of our Lord. Don't we think that something has happened with the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ that absolutely has changed the whole trajectory of history? So, yeah, I can find examples of God, quote, using a pagan king in the Old Testament. What does that have to do in the year 2019 Anno Domini, Mm -hmm. in the year of our Lord? Yeah. That was kind of a rant there. It was a, I mean, it was a good rant, though. Like, I, I think I think people like the rant. I like the rant. But I, your rant is trying to communicate that what you're trying to say is a pro-church argument, that your commitment in the church to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that you partnered with in the waters of baptism is what centrally defines you. And any allegiance that you have has to be subs, uh, uh, secondary to the allegiance that you made in the okay. waters of baptism. Yeah, so, for example, um, I've written extensively on my conviction that the waging of war is incompatible with following Jesus. That isn't primarily what Postcards of Babylon is about, but that comes up. But that is primarily what what, uh, A Farewell to Mars is about. Mm -hmm. Now, when I write like that, speak like that, preach like that, and there's opportunity for people to engage me, I can promise you every time Hitler comes up. Well, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? What about Hitler? And that's a complex question. It's not an easy question to deal with. But I always say, look, you're throwing me right into the middle of World War II. Let's back up at least a decade and let me ask you, how was it possible that Hitler was able to wage his blitzkrieg with baptized soldiers? How was it that Hitler was able to lead Christians? All right. Now, I know what people, well, they weren't real Christians. I don't know. I mean, they're baptized. They confess Christ. You know, they, they might be very sincere. They might have pietistic feelings. I don't doubt it at all. I mean, they might even have, you know, God with us on their belt buckle. And That's literally in my and, sermon yesterday. I mean, yeah. so thank you for ripping that off. So, so what had happened that the 19-year-old Fritz from Hamburg was not able to find a way to not participate in Hitler's war machine. Yeah. yeah. When the church loses its ability to be a prophetic witness, the church has been neutered, and the church loses yeah. its voice. And when we start thinking that the Sermon on the Mount has to become secondary to what is best for our nation— I think we're in trouble. And I think what I hear you keep pointing us back to is not to diminish a single party, but to elevate the person of Jesus and and the commitment that we have to Jesus in our life. If the vast majority of American evangelical Christians were trying to persuade me that God was accomplishing his purposes through the Democratic Party— and various Democratic candidates, I could speak out just as passionately 
against that folly as well. I'm, but, I, but I have to kind of acknowledge that which is the case. Mm-hmm. And by and large, that which is the case is that we have vast swaths of evangelical, and I'm going to say something about evangelical here in a moment, uh, Christians who, who apparently really believe that, I'm just going to say it, that God has raised up Donald Trump, which to me is just absurd. Now, when I say evangelical, I, 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 I like to point out I've never, identif- I've never self-identified as an evangelical ever in my life, um, e- even though one publisher forced the, the word evangelical onto the subtitle of one of my books. I didn't like it, but I didn't have a say over it. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. I was a Jesus freak. And then, and then maybe something of a charismatic Christian uh, I never saw myself as an evangelical. We saw that as, you know, as Pentecostals and Charismatics, if you go, yep. if you wind the tape back, we're not evangelical. They said, well, that's Baptist. That's not who we are. We're, yep. we're different than that. What happened was the culture wars drove everybody under the same tent. Hmm. Um, that's how that came about. I, and that came, that came about, I mean, the precursor, I mean, you had the rise of the moral majority and Pat Robertson's version of it, the uh, Christian coalition, mm-hmm. really in the early 80s, late 70s, and mostly the early 80s. But if you push it back a little bit further, what happened was the de facto, and it has to be de facto because of the way that the United States is arranged, uh, the de facto state church of America was basically mainline Protestant. And this is from the Revolutionary War onward. And what is the role of the state church? Well, ultimately, it is to assure the populace and especially the parents that God is on our side in our wars. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's easy to get young men to run off to battle. That's not hard to do. But you do want to convince mom and dad that God is on our side just in case Johnny comes home in a flag-draped coffin. You want to be assured that he died, you know, on the right side and that God is on our side. And so the, the, what we would identify today as the mainline Protestant church served that role all the way up to Vietnam. And when Vietnam came along, you had a lot of mainline Protestants, Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians going, yeah, yeah, I'm not so sure. I don't know that really God has called us to insert ourselves into a Vietnam, Vietnamese civil war. And the, the mainline Protestant church balked. And that's when the more conservative evangelical church came along and says, oh, yeah, we'll bless this war. I mean, we're fighting godless communism, aren't we? And and that's where there was a a shift uh, from the de facto state religion or state church of America being mainline Protestantism. It's shifted over to uh, evangelicalism, and evangelicalism hasn't recovered from that. So one of the things I like about you is that you've been a pastor church over three and a half decades, and in yeah. your church there is, from what I've gathered from our interactions, that there is a plurality of political opinions, and oh, absolutely. you even, uh, hopefully I'm getting the details right and that I'll have to edit this after, but you have uh, immigrants who are not legally in the States, and then you have people mm-hmm. whose actual job is to monitor immigration, yeah. and y- you hold what could appear to some as two antagonistic groups together, people with different political opinions, even down to that uh, uh, immigrant situation. How does that function as a church when you, when you have people who hear your teaching that, that it's not about 
the religious right that that's not God's answer, but you have people who vote on the right, people who vote on the left in the same church. First of all, that really is the case. Uh, people here in this co- podcast might think, oh, yeah, Brian's just, no, no, no matter what he says, he's just, you know, he's just a progressive, left-leaning Christian. Uh, well, I will tell you, I don't have the facts, but if I had to guess, I would say the majority of our church voted Trump. I would say that probably that's true. But here's the thing. Think about Jesus and his disciples. He had Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Tax collector, we don't really get that. Tax, these are people who are collaborating with the occupying Romans. They are, they are loathed. I mean, the people in general just hate the occupation, as people do. And then you have these that are collaborating with them to extract the taxes from their own people. Um, that's why they are despised, and that's why they are formally cast out of the synagogues. But Jesus calls one of these tax collectors, Matthew. He also has a guy named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a kind of guerrilla uh, operation advocating violence against the occupying Romans. And they were ready to launch a violent revolution. And yet Jesus draws them both into his circle of disciples. Now, they're going to be they're both going to be transformed, although I don't know that if in the first year that if you'd sat Matthew and Simon down and tried to have a political discussion, I still don't think they probably would have agreed. What they did agree upon was there's something about this Jesus. So. monolith in political opinion by any means. We really, we do have Trumpers. I mean, by the, by that I mean that are like, yeah, I really think that this guy's doing some good stuff, you know, at last. Mm-hmm. And we have some, we definitely have far left <laughs> Democrats who just think it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And yet, and they're aware of a, each other's presence. What they are able to do at Word of Life is recognize that Jesus occupies the centrality and that we can hold our various political opinions. And here's the key thing. As long as we are kind. What word of, and this wasn't like a sermon series. I've never done a sermon series on this. This wasn't a marketing campaign. This wasn't, I, we just, it just happened. And I became aware of it, that we had somehow over probably a decade, had cultivated a culture of kindness. And so a person can be a Trump supporter or a Bernie supporter or whatever in, at Word of Life as long as they can be kind about it. The moment they start becoming ugly about it, people around them are going to go, yeah, that's not, we don't do that here. Um, so, and, and I think that's the best, not the best, one of the great witnesses that the church can have in America right now in such our in such a, divided time if a church can be a community that says there is something that can unite us but you have to go something that's bigger than just a political divide and i think when we have churches like yours and and mine as well that i inherited a church that had uh, a a church i get to be a part of that has uh, even just recently in in my uh, my focus group before my sermon last week someone said you know you're uh, you're my most conservative or liberal i forget which term it was but you're my most conservative liberal friend and and, and we're together because of church. And I think that is what the witness of how church can be bringers of good news in such a divided time. 
Well, if the church isn't that, then what is it? I mean, if, if the church is just going to be another uh, pundit on either side of the culture wars, it's going to be increasingly marginalized into irrelevance. Yep. I think the hope we have of a future church in America that is credible is that people say, well, there's they're something other, aren't they? Yeah. They're not just another voice on one side or the other of the culture wars. They seem to be speaking about something that is completely other. Okay, so here's the question I want to let you get out of here on. There's a young pastor listening to this. Maybe he goes out and buys this book, Letters from Babylon, gets really excited about preaching against... Um, the way that uh, nationalism becomes idolatry. And right. he's all fired up, she's all fired up, and going to preach us in a sermon. What is your advice so that they can still have a job the week after? Well, think about doing this for the next 10 years. Don't try to change your church in one sermon. Take it slowly. Be patient with people. Uh, preach from the historical texts. Uh, preach from Revelation if you can do it without being an idiot. <laughs> you may need some help there, but re- read the good stuff. Read, you know, Richard Bauckham. Read uh, whoever wrote Reading Revelation Responsibly. That's, uh, I forgot his name. That's the best one. Read, t- talk about what it was like being a, a Christian in the Roman Empire and Draw the draw the dots close to one another, but let people connect it. People have to see it for themselves. You can't force it on them because then they'll react. Mm-hmm. So you be patient. You preach a lot of Jesus. Draw the dots, but let people connect the dots. Don't just come out and – I mean in this podcast – podcasts are a little different. I'm just sitting here talking with you, and, and interested people will tune in. Um, I'm saying things rather bluntly, more bluntly than when I preach. Good, good uh, word. Try to be artistic. Try to tell stories and let people make the connection for themselves. This is what this is why Jesus taught with parables. Why did Jesus teach with parables? Uh, not primarily to illustrate truth, but so that he wouldn't get killed in the first week of his ministry. When Jesus did stop teaching in parables, he was dead that week. So you know, keep um, be a little bit parabolic. Leave some room for people to make their own connections. Mm-hmm. Don't try to do it in one sermon. BZ, that's a good piece of advice right there. Um, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, BZ, I feel like we got this one taken care of. I think we Great. got the book covered. I think we got updated on you. Um, I feel like in some ways you atone for what you said about me at uh, Pepperdine. Um, I don't know if you have anything <laughs> else you feel like you need to say, but if you do, you let me know. But uh, other than that, it's been, it's been a pleasure. It's always good talking with you, Luke. Okay, when are you going on your next walk across the uh, world? September, October this year. Okay, well, I hope you don't get a bluster this time. Well, see, I did a 160-mile version of it this past. This, this will be my third one. This past October, Perry and I went to Liz. well, we went to Porto, Portugal, and did the Portuguese route, which traditionally begins in Porto and goes to Santiago. That's only 160 miles. Mm-hmm. But halfway through, my wife developed a stress fracture of her tibia mm-hmm. and was ended up on crutches for eight weeks. And she's still in the process of recovery, but I think she'll be able to go again. 
I know she wants to. Yeah, so. well, let's not get a stretch fracture though. That's that's not very fun. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, walking 500 miles with a pack is walking 500 miles with a pack. So it's mm. it's it's. I love it. I, it's really nothing else I'd rather do. But that doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah, isn't there a song about walking 500 miles just to? I could walk 500 miles. I could walk 500 and walk 500 again. Just so it's just really to be the man who walks a thousand. The, the proclaim. Fine. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a cool little song. Yeah, there it is. All right, we'll go look that up on Spotify after. Uh, BZ, it's a pleasure. All right, thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.